Welcome to Security Heroes, a podcast by Athena Security. We share real life stories to help connect you to real heroes in the security world. I'm your host, Lisa Falzone. Warning, the following recording contains potentially disturbing content. Listener discretion advised. Today, we conclude my conversation with Aaron Quarles, who was so great that we just had to have you for a part two. Aaron is a physician and an assistant professor in emergency medicine. Join us as we speak more about aligning community resources with the healthcare system and the challenges behind that. I'm curious what your thoughts are on, I mean, you have the public policy backgrounds, like more a broader perspective, what should we be doing? I mean, you talk about these homeless people coming in, it sounds like they're getting care in the ER, and then they're better, and then they're sent out, and then there's no care, and they don't have a job or anything yet, then they kind of revert, and then it just keeps going. That's kind of what I'm hearing from you. Again, with the vast majority of the violence that happens in emergency departments, most of it comes from a population of people that are going to be high rates of mental illness, high rates of other burdens of social need in a lot of ways. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot, a lot of that. On the upper ends of the spectrum can also be incredibly violent in ways because they're, you know, expecting things to go a certain way and sure. kind of used to waiting. And so everyone does it. And so violence as as is illness, as are all the social ills, isn't colorblind. It's impacting all of us. It's impacting what all of us, right? And so I think part of the things that we need to do in our local scenarios, in your own emergency departments, in your own spaces, is kind of thinking about, do we have a diverse workforce? Are we recruiting into that? Are we thinking about safety mechanisms that we can do that are very simple and low cost, like a process around how do we manage psych patients or intoxicated patients when we bringing them in and we want to make sure they don't have weapons and stuff. Are we working with our community organizations and partnerships to the emergency department and the jail? Cook County Jail is the largest mental health system in the country in many ways. It's quite honest. And are we thinking about other places to take care of patients? And so one of the Mm -hmm. things from a hospital perspective, we're thinking about things like hospital at home, which is a center for Medicare, Medicaid kind of innovation kind of grant. Now we're doctors are being able and hospitals are being able, if we can prove success with this stuff, to take care of patients in their own home for complex medical or certain medical conditions and needs, right? And have that reimbursed. Well, there's not a lot of places, particularly for mental health, substance abuse that are easily accessible for many of the folks that we have. So we got to be thinking about those types of solutions on the ground, period. And Mm -hmm. a lot of that is going to be incentivized and improved at the big level by what we're reimbursing, what we're paying for. You know, when it comes to kind of advocacy and whatnot, especially violence, there were a few bills that I was kind of looking up. The Workplace Violence Prevention Act for care and social service workers actually introduced by Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin. And ASAP is like our big organizing and one of our professional organizing political committees for emergency physicians across the country. So they do a lot of the advocacy and support this bill. And it calls for Occupational Safety and Health Administration to issue kind of more enforceable standards re- requiring health facilities to actually have safety plans and create a plan around workplace violence. So mm. at the legal level, now being kind of, okay, we should be incentivized and regulating and mandating that if you are serving care in these facilities, you have to have plans around this. And I think that's where you start to see modules, trainings, education of your local staff and whatnot. Further, there's another 
piece of legislation that I think called the SAVE Act, Safety for from Violence for Healthcare Workers Act. And that was put out by two congressmen. And it's kind of putting federal penalties to, or trying to kind of put federal penalties to healthcare or violence perpetrated against healthcare workers by, by state. So currently, if you were to look at some of the laws in Illinois, I don't have them perfectly memorized. And there's a chance I could, you know, butcher it, but it's currently illegal and punishable. Like it's a felony to assault a nurse, mm-hmm. but that language is kind of specific. It's not clear that it's all healthcare workers and this, that, and the other. And so some of the language that we can have in our legislation, some of the things, and especially some of the ways we can incentivize organizations to think about making these plans, partnering with other services, service providers to make sure we're doing this in our emergency departments, listen to our own staff and doctors and nurses and patients who are telling you this, you know, these surveys can bring this information up. Mm. We start to get a better sense of like understanding that, then you have a lot easier conversation to be able to try to address it. But it's so complicated, again, so interconnected. And Mm. again, go back to the homelessness thing, because I think it is a good model of all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we have wonderful philanthropic organizations doing incredible things, trying to take care of patients experiencing homelessness. And our organization is stepping up and doing everything we can. But amidst that, even within this whole thing, some of the leadership that is very supportive of it is also facing the challenges that, well, now we're trying to do things in a different, particularly in Chicago, as you know, it's starting to get cold. It gets cold in Chicago. So we have what's called a warming center that we use basically the hospital lobby. And every single night, particularly when it's cold, we have certain number of space and capacity for folks who don't have homes. And so they come for that. They don't have to go to the emergency department. That's not a violation of the rule. Amtala that we talked about earlier, they're not coming for medical care. They're coming for warmth and shelter. And that's a very specifically identified need. And yeah. we have capacity. Well, the ones that don't find capacity there and the even the ones that do are causing security issues in the hospital that are threatening our ability to provide that. And so, you know, when I got, you know, leaders who are very passionate and caring, wonderful people dealing with the real challenges while, you know, we're getting more and more issues of patients in the wrong floors, you know, these patients in particular that we're talking about. There was, you know, three fights that happened between patients, you know, in one week. Security incidents were called. I think I had a meeting with some of these folks to talk about some of this. And somebody said that in one week, we had about 50 security incidents, our ability to provide the warming center. And so that's just ridiculous, right? And so how can you do the good thing when doing the good thing and helping is starting to cost you money, cost you safety and all that kind of stuff. And so it gets very complicated and big. And if I am pushing on one thing, there's a chance I'm going to hurt something else. Right. And so Mm -hmm. you have to have a broader conversation about it. It's not just Mm -hmm. about, that's why I'm kind of rambly, but it takes our training, our understanding, the local departments, evaluation of it, measuring and documenting what these events are, what they look like, how do we identify? Mm -hmm. It takes taking that to the hospital and system level. What can we do? Partnering with agencies and community, like, you know, our law enforcement agencies, community, there are Examples, for instance, of cities that have sobering centers. And so instead mm-hmm. of being stuck in an emergency department or a jail sale, together, criminal justice and healthcare kind of man, you know, occupying staff, a drunk tank. And it doesn't have legal repercussions. And, and we know medically that, you know, there are very serious conditions that come with alcohol intoxication. But I can tell you, if I had a place that was not the emergency department where I could send a 
the vast majority of my experience of folks, the guy who pulled the gun on me was drunk. Like the vast majority of the violence that I've experienced, most would say alcohol is probably related or some intoxication. Mm-hmm. If you had a place where people could just sober up, that would be really interesting. What would it take to do that? It would right. be changing Impala, it would be changing some of our local policies and regulations around where EMS is allowed to take patients, developing new models of care, having relationships set up such that if this more like sobering center had the capacity to manage it, well, can I send a patient to you guaranteed, get them in if like to the emergency department that we're working with and make sure they get seen if something does arise, right? You can't set up a system like that and then leave people to fail. Like you need to be yeah. able to bring folks back if you do that. Like, and so it can be really, really challenging to have one thing solve all of this. I think it just takes a lot of different conversations. And I've been, you know, trying to figure out ways to kind of be in all of these conversations, mm-hmm. my own institution, because, you know, I've just been interested in this stuff and I have a back for, you know, finding myself in dangerous scenarios recently. Uh, But I think it's a conversation that is not being had enough. Nurses and patients and doctors and staff, secretary unit secretaries are victims every single day of horrific verbal Mm -hmm. abuse. We're just trying to help you out, you know? Yeah, totally. And I really don't think that people know, right? I mean, the school shootings, obviously very horrific, but those are very publicized. But in the ER, that kind of violence. It's like people, I just talked to just random people and they just have no idea. I actually had no idea that occurred either until we started getting so much demand for our product in emergency rooms. And it's actually the, our biggest vertical. So it's just, people just have no idea what's going on. So they don't. And as much as I've been able to talk, there's like stats, 85% of doctors have They've seen violence increase. Two thirds have had, you know, had been assaulted themselves. We know that those are under reports. So even creating systems of, you know, this is kind of how the interconnectedness of some of this plays, right? Like being able to create a system where, from a quality improvement with patient care standpoint, standard, like a lot of times we have to report a culture of safety, right? You know, there's a lot of mistakes that can happen in medicine, and we don't want people to get in trouble. We want to make systems better, right, to improve outcomes, and so. In that system, because that exists, well, okay, can we retool and repurpose this to bring up safety events? So being able to kind of, you know, solve problems and look at stuff from multiple different angles and utilize the local resources you have and the local structures and tools you have already in place to learn about the problem, but then also improve our ability to report things, improve our our safety with reporting. You know, the, the staff member I talked about who had been kicked by the patient. She had also responded, as most humans would be, if assaulted with physical response, like to protect herself from this patient, right? And, you know, that the fact that at some point in the conversation, she had to worry about her job safety. And in some scenario, you know, like she could be looked at as doing something wrong. Yes, yeah, like we should be perfect and the customer is always right in some way and you should always be. Well, no, you're a human being too. And yeah. so a policy that would protect somebody from, mm-hmm. you know, not retaliation, but like losing their means of, you know, income and, you know, their profession, if they're protecting themselves, mm-hmm. those kinds of things can be local policies within their own organization to make sure. sure we're, you know, kind of really doing what we need to do. So what percent roughly is the violence coming from homeless people? It's a lot of the patients experiencing homelessness. Many had their own mental illness and abuse. 
like substance abuse issues and whatnot, generally, particularly because we have such an iterative and long-term relationship. I've known some of these guys for years. Many of them actually are very calm. Like the mm. one, many of them, they have, you know, blow ups, particularly when meds aren't on. And sometimes it's a lot of times that verbal kind of stuff, but they live violent lives out there in the streets. They're right. kind of around the edges. They are often very, very highly victims of violence, rape, all kinds of things themselves out right, there. And right. Dealing with a lot. Not usually the worst culprits. The worst culprits tend to be, often tend to be like young, very alcohol intoxicated people. Uh, that tends to be what like you see a lot of. Somebody, you know, brought in, you know, thinking they're in trouble under arrest, drunk, you know, because they passed out at a, you know, bar or club or right. something, waking up, fighting everything. You know, one of a very particularly troublesome recently for. Uh, one we had is a young, healthy, no medical problem, but just a very overserved patient screaming racial slurs. Like, and you know, I'm black, my patient, or my resident sitting next to me is black and very visibly upset and distraught. You know, the patients are, you know, that's violence. And, you know, that's not necessarily getting punched and kicked and, you know, stabbed yeah. and guns. But, you know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that happens. And when you sure. do, it's that population and the mental health population, particularly some of the psychotic or psychosis, meaning things like schizophrenia, bipolar, mania, mm. that kind of stuff. It yeah. tends to be that group. And I don't have a perfect number to give you a percentage, but I would say probably, you know, close to like 50 to 75% of fast bulk, the big, like probably even more than 75% from some combination of alcohol intoxicated, mental illness gone awry or in crisis is a way to kind of think of it. And that makes up the vast majority of it with sprinkling in a delirious or altered patient because they're sick from right, some right. other process like an infection or sepsis, or the very, it's more rare for it to just be you and I going into the emergency department, getting angry enough to beat someone up. <laughs> like that's just yeah. not, we're most likely going to get angry enough and just leave. That's what most folks do, but the yeah. very, kind of persistent violence that we see usually comes from the population, especially alcohol intoxicated, but alcohol intoxicated and severe mental illness tend to be the big ones and definitely over 75%. And that's anecdotal, yeah. but in, in the experience, it's definitely closer to close to all of it. Yeah. I was just curious for, for the mental health patients that you mentioned that you get kind of fixed, at least in the short term, are Maybe. they like a Band-Aid, are they then afterwards being followed up with by a doctor or mental health professional to make sure that, you know, prevent it? Because you said a lot of these people come in multiple times. So is there anything to be done post-ER? In an ideal scenario, we have a warm handoff to something. And that warm handoff a family member, some homes, safety, and like other support with an appointment, or like maybe they need to come into day therapy or day outpatient, you know, therapy kind of things. Then there are folks that need inpatient psychiatric hospitalization. That's just, that's a whole group of folks. Right. But in ideal scenario, we're able to kind of connect to your primary care doc, a community mm-hmm. agency, early qualified health center in your neighborhood, and give people things in hand. Well, the challenge with mental illness is in part because of said mental illness, it can be challenging to take care of your mental illness, right? Like if Mm. you are 
having issues where you're not certain what's reality in some ways, mm. you sure as heck won't know when your appointment is or the overlap of other social needs, poverty, lack of transportation, difficulty making it to places. And so you find that a lot of times people get on good tracks and then they fall through and then they get on good yeah. tracks and they fall through. And this concept is called care coordination. How do we coordinate mm. the care of a patient to kind of make sure that you're doing it? And so one example that does a really great job, but certainly doesn't have the capacity to do it for every single one of our patients is we have a clinic that sees uninsured patients regardless. And what they found is, well, as time went on with the success of managing these patients and helping them find their medical home and helping them, well, I need to actually help these patients get insurance. Well, you know what? A lot of times they just don't have a place to wash their clothes. So can I get a washing machine and a dryer here? Well, well, we need some behavioral health workers and we need to make sure that some of them speak Spanish and we need, you know, and so you start to look, well, this clinic that started as a place to see patients, you know, without insurance, so we can then refer them to places, help them get insurance is now a place after years of you know success and work here that has long walk-in availability washing machines hot meals a lot of care providers who want to spend the time up to two hours to do an intake assessment of physical and mental health needs you know, helping patients get you know their identification that many of them just don't have because of the years of not necessarily you know, bouncing in and out of the system and not necessarily having stability. And so it can be in an ideal scenario, these patients have somebody that's going to follow them. In a healthcare system or a resource that has the resources, we can create programs, we can create clinics, we can do good work for folks. That happens in downtown Chicago. It's not necessarily going to happen in our rural places that are already critical access. It's not going to happen uh, in places where people are struggling to get to regular doctors. Right? Like in some yeah. These challenges are going to present themselves in varying to varying degrees and your ability to meet them with any kind of program project, you know, thinking about it is going to be limited by your local, you know, resources, interest, time, volume of patients that you have. And that's where, to me, measuring this stuff matters, being able to document yeah. things, count these things, see these things. Measuring this allows us to categorize them and classify them. Um. And that's kind of how I got into some of the work with homelessness. Well, not every person experiencing homelessness has the same problem. Some have been out here for 40 years. Some are only homeless because they got to fight with their family. There's a very yeah. different scenario and yeah. two weeks later, they're going to be home. Right. And so just like each of us with a medical condition, we all have our own unique needs, our own unique issues, our own personal challenges that needs to be applied in a lot of these situations as well. And kind of look at what the violence actually is to better than connect it and answer it from mm -hmm. a what the right thing to do is because currently it's well you talk to the patient try to be nice de-escalate them restrain them maybe they attack you maybe you get them a bed maybe you help them you hope they go to their doctor's appointment you hope they take their meds you hope they have a supportive family structure or community structure that mm. checks on them and keeps them safe that's what you want but i don't think that exists everywhere maybe one day like yeah, yeah. i mean it's interesting that you talk about the data because that's actually one, I mean, even just in traditional metal detection, there's no data of like, okay, well, if you did bring a gun, how many weapons did we, or how many weapons did we find today? And so that was one of the things I was also amazed by that people had no recording, or 
I mean, I'm not going to say all people, but are all organizations, but often there's no recording of like, okay, how many guns did we see or did we prevent from getting in the building? So, so just like an incident report is something that we provide. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm not sure I want to know. <laughs> Some ways it's kind of like when you walk past TSA and you see a big box of things they collected and there's like a grenade in there. And it's yeah. like, there's some things you kind of want to know. And I'm certain yeah. that like, you know, I've learned and big organizations move slow. They take a long time to make things, but they're not going to make any decisions about it. And all decisions require money. They're not going to make any decision until we are aligning incentives in an appropriate way and being able to kind of put a number to it. Right. And being able to stratify it, you know, it's amazing to have a conversation around, you know, one conversation you can have, hey, I think of this really wonderful idea, this really wonderful, you know, company that we could partner with or this service that could be provided. This is great. Let's do this. Well, okay, how much is it going to cost? It's amazing how challenging it can be to do this. Oh, I know. Hearing my frustration come through this. Oh, there's so many like different stakeholders at hospitals and it's definitely things take a while. So, but, but things are being done. Things are yeah, actually, you know, are. things are happening, right? That data is amazing. You know, when I, in some of the work with the homelessness, I got really into understanding the data and I'm not a researcher. I'm not like the best scientist at all. I don't want to claim that there are many people who are way more intelligent in this stuff than I, than I, but we were able to look at things like, okay, well, how many patients experiencing homelessness are coming in? okay, well, if the number is actually 5,000, how many of them are actually coming in lots of times versus once and never coming back? Well, that number is now 150. This per, there are you know, 150 people who've been here at least twice a month. Okay, what if we focus on 150 people instead of 5,000? Well, that's a lot mm-hmm. more easy to have a conversation with you know, your CEOs, your administrators and folks and your leaders of your organization. Well, similar to violence, okay. If we're having, you know, this many, if we're tracking and capturing and identifying one weapon a week, well, one mm-hmm. weapon a week, they got a lot of damn people, you know, that could harm a lot. Yeah, of, exactly. From the business side, if I don't have my doctors, my nurses, my staff, well, that's loss revenue consistently, right? And so what do we need to be doing? Is there a way to be kind of buying technology, you know, doing, hiring more staff, whatever? Well, it depends on what the violence is and the frequency, the rate, the manner in which we're identifying it. It's all about the data. If you, if you can start counting this stuff, I think you're going to be kind of scared to see what you actually find. <laughs> I'll totally. be pretty comfortable to, to hear if we ever had support, but I, I certainly would support something like that. I think that transparency tends to be the best. Sunshine is incredible when it comes yeah, to this stuff. Totally. Why do you think the, you mentioned the violence has increased in the last two or three years. Why do you think that is COVID or? I think that one's kind of hard. I don't know if I have a good answer for that, like is what everyone would say, but I think Mm -hmm. numerous factors, right? And so we all know that COVID changed things for a lot of people, changed individuals, made them more or less socially isolated caused them to have or develop more or less, you know, substance abuse issues, mental health Mm -hmm. issues, the component, it directly caused some of it in other ways in which, you know, lost time, lost pay, frustration, worsened scenarios in, in many people's lives, new conditions, new diagnoses, delayed care for, you know, I can't tell you how many times during COVID people came in three days after they first had chest pain and they had a horrible heart attack or, you know, three days after one side of their body went paralyzed from a stroke. And it's like, well, I was worried about COVID. So there's a lot of stuff there mm. that added to the massive effect that COVID had 
on staff turnover. Mm. Our important, incredible, most important, you'll never hear me not tell you the most important job in our all emergency departments is what our nurses do. Mm. They're at the bedside, closer to the patients, doing the stuff that none of us want to do, getting the brunt of all the violence, mm. period. And it is very clear that COVID upheaved how we staff or how we staff hospitals with nurses. So you probably heard of like travel nursing mm-hmm. and you've all heard of, you know, staff nursing. Well, staff, they work, their travel nurses get paid way more to go do all these kind of fun things. And a lot of nurses, particularly nurses who are early in their career, and it's a really enticing experience to travel around the country and get paid yeah. a whole lot what you're already doing. Well, what does that mean practically? Well, now you're in new environments. You don't necessarily know the policies, the regulations. I'm working with a team that's full of, you know, fortunately not usually in my environment, but if I moonlit somewhere else, I'm working with a bunch of folks who've never been there before. Mm -hmm. And so that level of lack of staff stability, not only is it new people not knowing what they're doing, it's also a burnout contributor. Now the folks that have been there over like that whole situation is getting worse, not to mention the COVID thing and that all that. So I think mm-hmm. we kind of keep going, you know, as we're kind of wiping our, you know, the COVID crust out of our eyes. And, you know, I say that knowing full well, that next time I go into work, I'm going to have way more COVID patients. Fortunately, they haven't been as a, when this all started. Um, I think that burnout, that staff turnover, the frustration that patients themselves have probably an increased incidence and burden of, Reason stressors in general that contribute mm. to abuse and mental illness. I think all of that's working together in some complicated stew, probably increase it or at least increase the perception of it. And it, I wouldn't want to lie about the data, but again, like if you survey us, we all think it's going up. I think, like, if pull that survey up and see if they had a reason for why they think it's getting, getting up, but I'm not, I, no one really knows. I think the obvious one is, you know, We've always looked at doctors and nurses as this very trusted profession. It's one of the fun parts of it, right? Like there's this this prestige and whatnot. And the most trusted profession for years has always been our nurses. COVID strained that, you know, not just COVID, but like the political misinformation in some way, the lack of the confusion we were experiencing on the front lines, not knowing Mm. what was going on and the uncertainty. When any patient comes to the emergency department, they think it's the worst day of their life. Something really bad is happening. And then they're stuck in a waiting room with somebody that, you know, is next to them coughing. It's a very scary environment. And I've seen violence start because I'm in immunocompromised. Why should I have to sit next Mm -hmm. to someone coughing who doesn't have a mask on? You know, like this kind of stuff. Right. And these are fights. Like we see these. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think COVID added a layer of complexity for all of us you know, probably increasing it. So patients, communities, resources, doctor, staff, all of it, all of us are seeing the effects. Yeah. I just noticed in general, I'm just like, people are still like kind of in a bad mood, you know, like, people, like, like there's something about like, yeah, I don't know, like, I don't know what it is, but when I was raised, there's, it seems like a sense of concern for other people or being courteous or like yeah. thinking about folks, you know, often again, patients, right or wrong, no judgment on this, but patients feel like their emergency is the most important emergency. Mm. And for many reasons, I can't tell you why your emergency is not the most important emergency. You know, this person's trying to beat up my staff. You may have an abdominal issue or get diarrhea, but you're not going to die from this, right? Mm. Fortunately. And so like, but to them, it's still their emergency. And I Mm. think being in that heightened sense of arousal, having a high level of uncertainty about what's going on with your own situation or how a process works 
is mm-hmm. disoriented. You know, I've definitely been in scenarios where like, hey, like, you know, I don't know what's happening right now. And, you know, why is this taking so long? What's going on? You become a little bit anxious, right? And I think all of that, you know, kind of plays into it, that uncertainty, that lack of trust, feeling like your answers aren't getting answered, feeling like I can just Google it and I'm a doctor or a nurse mm-hmm. and WebMD myself. There's a lot of tension. I want, I demand this test. No, you don't need this test. You need an MRI in the emergency department for what you're complaining about. We've already got mm. this. Free to go home. Totally. I mean, I even see that just like getting my blood work done. It's just like all these angry people. And I'm just like, oh, it's such a bad vibe. But anyway. We pass the torch of the problem a lot, right? And so like, I just kind of came up with that a little bit. But like, as you're kind of talking about it, I'm feeling the frustration that I get when a patient sent from an urgent care to the emergency department. And then when I have to encounter this patient or nurse and let them know everything's okay, they're frustrated sometimes. And they're like, I demand an answer for what's going on. And they just don't understand the the medicine of it. It's like, there is no answer that I can find in the emergency. And there's a lot of frustration from patients that comes in these moments of just like uncertainty. And it's like a fight, but like, no one told me this, like passing the torch, this person's coming in for this. And when I get that information, I go see the patient mm-hmm. and update them with what I think is good news. And, you know, they're now mad at the nurse or the tech or something happened and they blow up on me. Finally, I'm mm-hmm. the last one sees them and they're angry about it, even though I'm telling them they're safe and they can go home. This chain of like, you know, death by a thousand cuts, like, all right, mm-hmm. I'm 30, I gotta pee. They're poking me. I'm like, they're not telling me anything. I know they had my blood back there. I want totally. to say that's just yeah. natural human stuff, right? Yeah, totally. Well, I was just curious just because when we talked about homelessness, I mean, if you were, let's just say the president of the United States and you had full control or, you know, whatever, like, what would you, what are your thoughts on how to solve? How to solve that? I give everyone a home. I believe in housing first. For many years, we've had many decades dealing with this problem across the country, kind of a notion that folks experiencing homelessness need to heal themselves somehow in order Mm. to be worthy of a home Mm. or support or assistance to be able to be housed. And you see a lot of frustration in this, in the political spheres. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe. It just matters the fact that like, let's just look up this on face value. How will I ever manage my chronic condition? Even if I'm not on drugs, even if I don't have mental illness, how will I ever manage my heart failure, my kidney disease? If I don't have a place that I can safely store my medications. Like, how do you do that? And so, you know, there's plenty of evidence that if you get patients in some type of temporary or permanent supportive housing, housing first, you know, no stipulations that more kind of a harm reduction model, like, okay, if you have to use it, we don't want you to, but we want you to do it safely, mm-hmm. clean needles, things like that to make sure your risks of bad outcomes are low while also still providing that support. You need to be able to find wonderful programs like Facing Forward in Chicago, who does this kind of stuff. And now the problem is their capacity, right? They're limited. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at affordable housing and you look at all these different types of solutions, you know, if I had a magic wand as a president and no competing political kind of gains that I yeah. had, to, it would be housing first, some form of supportive housing. From the medical side, it would be incentivizing and paying for providers to be able to screen, collect, and analyze these social determinants of health, things like home, like housing stability, food security, transportation, income, social connection. If I could fund and support, which we're making progress on that area, 
and then start to understand these things better and be reimbursed for it, right? Like that's mm. kind of the thing that drives the needle. We have a lot of beds for patients who have certain conditions and whatnot that drive a large payment from insurers, right? So if you can start to do that kind of stuff, right? Making it yeah. easy for cross-agency communication. So I think especially with the data conversation, so homes, better data, better communication, some type of support in these spaces, incentivizing providers and service providers, not even just the hospital, but like the criminal justice system and the community-based organizations that are real experts at some of this stuff, but often the ones with the least resources to make significant impacts. If we could get all of that to be aligned towards solving these problems, we could do it. I question our ability to do that anytime soon, but I do think that we are making a lot of progress, particularly like within the healthcare space where we're starting to see that actually from a financial and economic standpoint, while we may not have everything figured out, we are certain that, well, it's probably cheaper to prevent this person coming in the hospital and being admitted mm-hmm. once a month. It's probably sure. better to support this person and keep them out of the hospital and maybe there's some community agencies we can partner with, and then we can support and incentivize that. So we're seeing a lot more of that. It's still slow, but I yeah. think that we're making progress in the right way. But Magic Wand, I give everybody a home and support them. Same things yeah. we all you know, Everybody deserves health, safety, shelter, food, water, friends. Yeah. yeah, talk to me about what you guys are doing exactly at Facing Forward. So Facing Forward is an organization that is not at Northwestern, but they are yeah. a wonderful organization initially like a faith-based organization that had started many years ago and has gone through many transitions i got offered an opportunity to be a board member and i've never been on any boards of anything but i've been very passionate about this kind of work and stuff over my career so far and it is an organization that is philanthropically funded and federally and state funded in a variety of different ways to provide services to patients experiencing homelessness across the spectrum of their lives and they do it with temporary permanent supportive housing where you know you can have an apartment you and your family they do things like bringing families together they do things Mm -hmm. like being in chicago public schools we have many 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 students who are going to school and not having places to live so really kind of improving the ways we identify and support students in those spaces and so they're hitting at different areas job training skills you know, parenting skills and some of that stuff. Anything that any organization that is going to look at the whole person and try to treat the whole person is taking on a monstrous task, Mm -hmm. but the right task, particularly for folks that are kind of challenging it. And then we use a lot of evidence-based kind of programs, all with kind of a trauma-informed kind of sensibility about it. So our, our caseworkers and staff are all really the best of the best when it comes to, you know, intaking clients. In that regard, at our hospital, a lot of my specific work with this population really came from the data stuff, trying to understand, quite honestly, being frustrated at writing one of those scenarios where a patient I had seen earlier in the shift, who's a person that, you know, it's a pejorative term and shouldn't be used, but sometimes they are called regulars or frequent utilizers or hospitalizers, like great terms, but that's a lot of the way the literature kind of talks about it. But I remember being a second year resident, just like, man, how many times has this person been here in one year? What's that number? And how much, like, and no one can answer that question consistently and clearly at every level in different roles that I asked. This was as a a trainee. 
And so again, at the hospital, I started kind of digging into it and I wanted to say, okay, what if we just count it? Or what if we just started encouraging people to diagnose homelessness in the coding of our electronic medical records, which now we do have the C codes where we can document things very quickly uh-huh. in the electronic medical record, like homelessness, food insecurity, transportation, that stuff now allows us to better count and identify, particularly with some granularity. It used to be you could put homeless, not homeless. Now you have unstably housed, long-term homelessness, intermittent homelessness, similar to conditions that we, you know, you have acute asthma, chronic asthma, and we, similar to the way we think about it. Now doctors can look at these social issues. And so I worked for years trying to improve our ability to just count the patients that we were having coming into our emergency department and then comparing across the city at other emergency departments. And we've been really fortunate and supported actually by JB and MK Pritzker. JB Pritzker is the governor of Illinois, has a philanthropic organization. Uh, We're working on or support for some of this, but we've been really successful in bringing the entire city of Chicago, many of our competing healthcare partners, to the table to have a conversation about how do we better screen and identify? Because what you see is my emergency department, I do it one way, emergency department two miles away, does it a very different way, the third one and fourth and so on and so forth. And so how can we take our shared experience or shared knowledge our you know, shared resources and then get a better understanding of our global population and their unique challenges like the issues there. And then now have a better landscape analysis of what resources are available, what's going on, and then start to move the needle forward on better connecting or better identifying particular conditions that we want to really focus on and drive. And that's taken me six years and we were still making progress. But again, like to have competing hospitals in the same city that are ardent competitors joining the table at the same Mm -hmm. time to talk about how can we share our particularly like our data issues and the challenge we're trying to count these folks so we can all take this problem together you cannot take any of these issues and solve them in a vacuum they have to involve the stakeholders that you're interacting with even your competitors in some ways that's something that i've been really grateful for in my experience in northwestern and seeing how supportive our leadership and how encouraging our leadership has been to really allow some creativity and partnership across the city for this big problem i think if you if you do it right, you know, if we another magic wand problem, you know, some type of community information exchange that can be mm-hmm. shared free of legal issues and data mm-hmm. stuff and, you know, IP and all that. If we had a way where I can at any hospital I'm working in or uh, an officer while they're in their squad car, if they need to, or a community service agency could pull up the same identified patient and get a mm-hmm. basically what I used to call like a social vital sign. Like mm. how many times they've been in a hospital have they, mm. you know, one thing you'll see with homelessness is, you know, many organizations are limited in what they can provide or do based on the funding dollars they get. And so a lot of our federal funded dollars have very strict definitions of homelessness that they can provide services to and, and so on and so forth, similar with our philanthropic groups, right? And so what you'll find is, you know, there's a guy who's homeless for several years. Oh, but now there's this new housing program. Can we get him in it? Well, no. Because he, 20 years ago, he was convicted of arson. And now that makes him ineligible to receive services that are funded based on mm. that scenario. And you're like, what? You know, certainly, you know, school assault, you know, sexual yeah. predators, violent criminals, things like that can make it really challenging for us to do things. And so the systems, the communities, we have to do it ourselves. You know, I think 
if we had a way to talk to each other, share the language, share common definitions, share numbers, then I think we would see a lot more incentive to say, hey, this pattern's happening here. Maybe we should focus more of our support or resources. That communication, that cross-pollination, I think, only comes when we can figure out how to talk to each other and share that info. Yeah. So is that a HIPAA issue or why is that? So even with like setting the homelessness and violence, some of this kind of stuff aside, just looking at a patient only near you, anybody, already as it stands, every patient's medical information is kind of owned and controlled in some ways by the hospital, right? And Mm -hmm. so records, right? And you do have rights as a patient with your medical information and you are able to kind of access that stuff and get it. And we've had some changes where now patients can read their notes and you have more Mm -hmm. access. But in order to be able to see things, it wasn't always the case that I could pull up what's called Care Everywhere in Epic and see what happened at the hospital down the road that also happened to use Epic. Not all hospitals have it, right? And so the interoperability and communication can be very limited, even in just trying to do the right medical thing. And what Mm -hmm. that leads to, well, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to repeat a CAT scan or I'm going to have to redo this unnecessary expensive test which is obviously bad for the system, obviously wasteful and efficient because I can't communicate. The VA does a better job. The VA's you know, medical record, you can be anywhere in the country and pull up anyone's medical record who's a VA patient and see it immediately, instantly, and see everything in the history there. Mm-hmm. And that kind of limitation impedes us in our management of medical care, which we are experts mm-hmm. at. We know how to do medicine. Imagine how complicated it is when we're trying to help and support these deep social needs that a lot of our patients, particularly those who are often the ones, you know, victims of and or contributors to the violence that we see in the emergency department. You know, it's definitely yeah. a lost opportunity, I think. But I think we're making progress. I think we're, we're you, moving in the direction. Do you like Epic or is it just a matter of like, it's just about configuring it to the hospital or sounds like Epic, you're really familiar with it? I mean, Epic's the big one. It's the largest one in the game. I, I don't know all those numbers from a business perspective or right, right. have any industry ties to any of this stuff, but it's the one I'm most familiar with because it's yeah. the one that's in most of the places that I've worked in. Yeah. The interesting thing you find about Epic, and I think probably why it was successful early on in that market, is it's highly, highly, highly customizable. Right. And so even within our own system in Northwestern, we have satellite hospitals, other Northwestern hospitals out, you know, in the suburbs right. or what their epics, the same epic, but yeah. there are slight variations in the way things look or are or where they are. And so that stuff, like those little tiny idiosyncrasies like exist and they're just part of the process. Yeah. Epic has some really wonderful functionality that's been coming online, especially around social determinants of health screening and documentation. And so you know, being able to screen patients and ask questions and have a place consistently to store it in the medical records so that every right. time an individual shows up, we can see it is powerful and helpful. How best to use it, we're still learning. I've worked with some other electronic medical records and I wouldn't want to use any names of anything because yeah. I barely know the names of anything. But I'd say that like, you know, Epic's by and away the one that most of us are going to be comfortable with, familiar with. It's a little yeah. bit more friendly in a lot of ways. It's also very customizable, which I think is part of the frustration. It's yeah. just a little bit different everywhere you go. So bringing it back to the security industry, just because it's called Security Heroes. I mean, what advice do you have as an ER doctor for the security industry? What would you like to see more of 
for people working and helping keeping you safe? I think the talking and the communication is part of it, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I think that's something that, you know, is going to lead to these conversations and improve our learning and understanding. Because I think we all know what happens in our own emergency department experiences, hospital experiences. We see the violence ourselves from our perspective lenses, right? I see it from a physician lens where, you know, okay, this person's delirious, they're psychotic, they're intoxicated, I have to treat a condition, right? You know, then you step over to the security and they see it as, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that can create a lot of rift. And I think when I've seen interdisciplinary efforts, you know, teams work the best towards solutions of things. And if we're talking about violence here, you know, getting your medical staff and your security staff, your business staff, your community staff, patients should be centered there with their values as well considered. If you get them in the room talking and you get this conversation happening, then I think you're going to learn a lot on both sides. And I wouldn't want to presume I know anything about security compared to security experts in many ways. But I'd say that there's a lot of us that aren't talking because we don't know how to talk. We don't know what to talk about. We don't know who to talk it to in terms of some of this stuff. And I'm, I'm talking about just like reporting and identifying this mm-hmm. issue. Because I think if we are able to engage in these conversations and have real authentic interest in trying to decrease the experience of violence, it's going to require us understanding each other's experiences in the different. And I think the opportunity there is, okay, well, now we can do cross training. Right. And so we are doing things like simulation experiences and, you know, medicine loves sim. We prep for mass casualty events and things like that. And, it, you know, especially in a training program where we have residents and students. Well, imagine, you know, simulation experiences where we're dealing with an active shooter. And I'm the doctor on this team with my nurse and staff and I have a security guard. How are we going to all work together in the care of this patient, which we are obligated in some ways to do, as well as the safety and protection of all the staff trying to do that care, provide that care. That's not something we do. It goes towards, I made a comment earlier about diversity and hiring and and thinking about some of the ways in which we bring staff on. We don't really hang out with each other. The doctors and the security guards aren't friends. You know, we're not in the same rooms. We're not going to the same school. We don't have the same education levels. We don't have the same in colors often, right? Like these, these things I think create unnecessary barriers. And usually, you know, anytime you get doctors in a room and people in suits or, you know, whatnot telling us what to do, the general rule of thumb is like, these guys don't know what they're talking about. It's kind of doctors versus administrators. It's a very common throughout the world, but I would say humanizing this and bringing, you know, in that post-gun experience, we had a lot of suits talking to us. My class of students, when we walked out, were very unsatisfied, did not mm. feel safe. They were very frustrated with some of the, the administrative talk. When yeah. we got residents, students, faculty, staff, into break, and security, guards, actual guards, not administrators, and got them into little breakout sessions and had... Mm-hmm. What's it like to have these conversations? What are you experiencing? How might you be trained? How might you try a better approach? Or like, tell me about an experience. Man, that was a totally different conversation. And that led to, okay, well, let's create this committee. We should actually have a committee that's interdisciplinary with residents and yeah. staff, faculty having these conversations that could lead to change. And that, to me, is really what I, I want to have. So one of the reasons I was very happy and, and excited to kind of uh, hop on here and have a conversation with you. Make sure that these stories get told. Make sure that you guys, as you're developing products and strategies and, and partnering with us, are hearing our voices as we're kind of talking about it. You know, and I think that's something that I'm very grateful for. 
thanks for bringing me on. Absolute honor to have you. And I'm so excited that we get to hear your perspective of, you know, the people that we're protecting and the security industry is protecting. And so it's just, you have so many ideas and so it's just been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Security Heroes is brought to you by Athena Security. To find out more about Athena Security and how we help save lives through our weapon detection solution, visit www.athena-security.com. And then make sure to search for Security Heroes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Athena, thanks for listening.